Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I found this thumb drive in the parking lot at Brookings. I, I can stick it in my computer, right? Yeah, that's always what you should do when right. you find a thumb drive on the ground. Just okay. put it in your computer. How else are you going to know what's on it? Yeah, how else are you supposed to know what's on there if you don't just stick it into the computer? I guarantee if you wander around Mar-a-Lago right now, there are just thumb drives <laughs> scattered on the ground everywhere. Do you think they have like little Mar-a-Lago Club logos on them? <laughs> they even say on them, stick me in your computer. <laughs> okay, that imagery, no. In case it wasn't clear. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady Edition. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like a new version of Florida Man? Yes, Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady. (laughs) I think think the case against her should be U.S. v. Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady. Honestly, there are so many threats. We need to just go to like basic descriptions. Right. We're out of code names. We're right. out of last names. Exactly. Yeah. We Mar-a-Lago should just shorthand all of this. Thumb drive lady. <laughs> you remember her, Mar-a-Lago? Oh yeah, the thumb drive lady. Is that the massage parlor lady? No, 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 no. Different lady. Somebody else in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh my, my, my! I am here in the New Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy and my friends Ben Wittis and Tamara Coffin Wittis are joining us remotely. Hi, guys. Yeah, we are here in, in, the, in the Sausalito studio yes. of, of Rational Security. Did you know we had one? And I hear it's lovely. It's quite beautiful. <laughs> We're looking out over the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. Recording Rational Security. Well, I'm, I'm look- gazing at Shane Harris, so <laughs> you know what? You can take your Golden Gate Bridge and shut Stop it. it. <laughs> and I'm looking at a half-used bottle of coffee made in a Bob Mueller devotional candle. <laughs> So you're totally jelly. On the podcast this week, a White House official claims more than two dozen denials for security clearances were overturned. And we'll also talk about Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady in that segment. Uh, Six months after Saudi agents killed journalist Jamal Khashoggi, what has changed in the U.S.-Saudi relationship? And congressional oversight committees gear up for the post-Muller era. Um, Let's start by talking about this claim from a whistleblower that came out this week. Ben, and I'll come to you first to talk about this. Um, Just to catch everyone up reading here from our coverage in the Post, um, a White House whistleblower told lawmakers that more than two dozen denials for security clearances have been overturned during the Trump administration, calling Congress her quote-unquote last hope for addressing what she considers improper conduct that has left the nation's secrets exposed. Um, This is coming from a woman named Trisha Newbold, who's a longtime White House security advisor, and she told the House Oversight 
Oversight and Government Reform Oversight and Reform Committee um, that she and her colleagues had issued dozens of denials for clearances that later were turned over, despite their concerns about blackmail, foreign influence, and other red flags. So, Ben, I think this goes to some of the report, a lot of the reporting that we've been seeing about people in the White House getting security clearances that they probably should not have. But this seemed pretty astonishing to have a whistleblower come forward and claim that more than two dozen security clearances denials were reversed. I mean, A, to have that many denials in a White House is really quite stunning, uh, it seems to me. But B, to have them then reversed begs the question of what in the world is going on inside the White House. Right. So first of all, it is astonishing in, in the sense that it's it's a shocking story. And on the other hand, it is completely unsurprising given everything that we have heard before, which is that, you know, the president is personally overturning security clearance denials or holdups to his son-in-law and that the White House, you know, has people working in it who can't get security clearances because of domestic abuse issues and other other concerns. And so we've had this has been a long running problem. And it in some ways is not surprising that staff have started coming forward and saying, hey, you don't know the half of it. Here is uh, the scope and scale of the problem. That said, the scope and scale of the problem is completely shocking. And in any other White House, this would be a major, major scandal. In this White House, however, they seem to not mind this. Uh, and they, their, their chief anxiety about this seems to be that Congress might investigate it. Uh, and so I, I do want to refer listeners to a lengthy piece that our colleague Margaret Taylor wrote in uh, Lawfare last week about the degree to which the White House is stonewalling congressional efforts to investigate this material. Margaret goes through it in uh, remarkable depth. And, you know, Congress has been trying to investigate this even in the Republican-controlled Congress for two years, and the White House has refused to turn over substantial material. And so I do think it's it's quite scandalous, and the efforts to impede investigation of it and public understanding of it are themselves scandalous. And Susan, I think listeners to the podcast will understand this, but it bears repeating. These are not clearance denials being issued just because uh, for capricious reasons or because Trisha Newbold and her staff didn't like Jared Kushner. I mean, these follow extensive background investigations by the FBI that are then turned over to people like Newbold who are trained in what are the red flags and the derogatory information and the unresolved issues you look for. And usually White Houses defer to those people because they know what's appropriate for when to grant a clearance, right? Yeah, so I think that the way to think about it is there are traditionally factors that are just considered disqualifying for holding a security clearance, right? So having ever uh, been employed by a foreign intelligence service or, or uh, having served in a foreign military, those kinds of things, right, that just you would understand or, or serious criminal conduct in, in one's past or serious drug addiction issues, things that we could sort of imagine, hey, nobody's getting through. Um, and then there is a set, you know, this is an 
adjudication process where they they undertake this very long, extensive uh, background investigation, extensive interviews, and, and they make a decision about whether or not all things considered, the information suggests that this person is suitable for a clearance or not. And there is an element of judgment involved in that. But these are individuals who are professionals. They do this hundreds and hundreds of times every single year. Uh, and so they are, uh, you know, they're, they're not out to get particular people. They're trying to uh, apply a neutral criteria, although we should acknowledge that there is, you know, some discretion in that criteria. So one thing that's really hard to understand about this story is the scale. So 25 individuals uh, having been essentially overruled from the top people who they said, we don't think these people should have clearances. And then someone above them uh, came down and said, uh, no, they should. We don't actually have numbers to compare that against. So there's a lot of indication internally that this is really unusual. It's not unheard of. Um, but, but one thing that's sort of hard to get a sense of is how big, a, how large an aberration is this from sort of the normal operating procedures. It's also not clear at what level these were overturned. So we know uh, from reporting that uh, the, the President Trump personally intervened uh, and overruled not just these lower level career officials, but his own White House counsel, his own chief of staff, insisting that uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, be given a clearance uh, and his daughter, Ivanka Trump, be given a clearance. We actually don't know for these other 25 people where in the chain or, or, or what, uh, what might have happened. And so it's hard to sort of construct a full story. Now, the White House's response here that Trisha Newbold, who has done this work for 18 years through administrations of, of Republicans and Democrats, their suggestion that she doesn't fully understand how the security clearance process works is ridiculous. The other thing is she's counting, uh, she's, she appears to be counting her objections here and saying, hey, it's not that I was overruled. I understand that other people get to overrule me. It's that they're overruling me in situations in which I think it's really concerning and they aren't providing the proper documentation. So she's also saying, hey, it's not just that I'm getting overruled here in serious situations. It's that the process isn't being followed. It's also relatively clear that there are two senior officials that are of primary concern here. So I think a reasonable guess is that Jared Kushner is likely one of those senior officials, but we don't know for sure. And she says that for official one, as this person is referred to in the committee documents, uh, Newbold and another employee recommended that this security clearance be denied after a background investigation revealed, quote, significant disqualifying factors, including foreign influence, outside business interests, and personal conduct. And so to me, whenever we think about what motivated her to be a whistleblower, it's pretty clear that, yes, it's process foul. Yes, it's sort of the, the, the devolution of any kind of security culture. I think there's obviously some specific concerns about specific officials. One sort of final point I, I would make, and that's that I really think Trisha Newbold sort of represents a model of government service in this administration. Um, so this is someone who, who went through the appropriate process channels, alerted her superior, that person's superior, the White House Counsel's Office, a special assistant to the president, exhausted all internal options, then went to Congress, went to, went to Congress on the record uh, in sort of in, in an appropriate way. 
you know, and, and, and clearly waited until she felt like, look, I, I have a duty and an obligation to speak out. Uh, I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to get back to, to work and get back to my job. Part of this story is that apparently she's faced a significant amount of retaliation, uh, you know, sort of whistleblower retaliation at the office. And I, I do think it's worth sort of just um, noting how commendable and brave and sort of simple a response it is to a question that a lot of people are, are grappling with, with, which is how do you ethically serve in a an unethical administration. Yeah. And Tammy, I want to ask you, and that's, let's bring in our, our old friend, the Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady here. <laughs> um, for listeners who don't know, this was a woman who was a, a Chinese national, I believe, right, who was stopped by the Secret Service yesterday trying to get into Mar-a-Lago, presenting false pretenses for why she was there. Uh, I believe she had two Chinese passports with her and a thumb drive containing malware. So, and four cell phones. And four cell phones, right. So, I mean, now we have somebody who, who presents at least as uh, potentially somebody who is conducting espionage or trying to maybe put a virus into a computer at Mar-a-Lago. It seems like what we're talking about here is potentially a permissiveness and a breakdown in the security culture that is unique to this president and the people around him if we are seeing both security clearance issues being flagged in the White House and now uh, you know this this breakdown at Mar-a-Lago. Now I should say she was caught while she was there, but you know there have been tons of stories about foreign nationals coming in and out of that facility, um, both people who are there for official uh, happenings and otherwise, people trying to sell access to people to get memberships at the club. I mean, it just seems like this is part of a pattern of of just a complete you know lackadaisical approach to security. Yeah, so I, I think that, of course, if she'd bought a ticket to a gala at Mar-a-Lago, they would have let her in no problem, right? right. It's only because she somehow, her reservation was a little sketchy or, or, or something like that, that they that they actually caught her. But I think that there's a reason that these stories have resonance, and there's a reason why this issue of clearances, and especially Jared Kushner's clearance, keeps coming up, and it's not going to go away. It's because it combines kind of several concerns, consistent concerns, about President Trump and his administration's approach to governance, not just to security or to issues of national security, although that is one part of it, is the carelessness with which the president himself, from his very first week in office, seems to treat national security information the disrespect and disregard he has for the intelligence community and the work the national security professionals do in the administration. But it combines that concern with a concern over conflicts of interest and corruption and also with the concern over nepotism. And all three of these are, you know, themes really of this Trump presidency that seem to just pervade the workings of the administration, not just in the White House, but well beyond it. And I, I agree very much with Susan's point about the dilemmas for professional civil servants trying to do their jobs and fulfill their responsibilities in this environment. And it's evidence of the ways in which a failure by elected officials to take seriously conflict of interest, nepotism, and national security protection how that corrupts the entire functioning of government. They, it literally makes it impossible for the people who are hired to work on behalf of American, the, the American population to do their job. I mean, one thing I do think it's worth noting about the Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady is 
This was a really clumsy attempt, and so she got caught. There are almost certainly dozens, if not hundreds, of examples in which the person didn't get caught because you're dealing with more sophisticated actors. And so this is the tip of the iceberg about what's going on there. Not all classified information directly imperils someone's life. Yes, we have an overclassification problem in the U.S. government. Some classified information really does. It really does risk sources and methods. It really does risk people's lives. It really does imperil the U.S. and allied military abroad. It is not unreasonable to expect the president of the United States to care about keeping that information safe. It is not unreasonable to hold him accountable when he has repeatedly warned about threats to that information. And his response is basically, yeah, I don't care so much about that. Um, and so this is an area in which, honestly, if Congress does not thoroughly commit itself to investigating this and to getting an answer and to, frankly, stopping the ongoing threat, then Congress is not doing its job. Ben, let me just ask you very briefly, because we're going to close the segment. Do you think there are any is – there, is there a winning political issue for Democrats out of this? And I'm reminded of the – you know, the vitriol that Republicans launched at Hillary Clinton for having a private email server and how they said that this was putting our classified information at risk. It seems to me that you could easily make the same argument uh, by using the security clearance issues that have been flagged for starters. I mean, do you think there's there is there anything winning politically for the Democrats there? So, look, I'm not a political strategist, but my gut is probably not. Uh, the reason the Hillary Clinton email matter worked so well is that Republican-based voters think of themselves as security voters, whereas Democratic-based voters uh, don't actually think of themselves as national security voters. And therefore, uh, it's a message that is probably less energizing to liberals than it is to conservatives. Um, that said, I think Democrats should uh, focus on it anyway, because it is scandalous and it is a major problem and it needs to be addressed. And look, there's a, you know, Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady is a funny little story, but there's a reason why we're talking about it in this context, right, in the context of this security breach. Uh, and, and, and security clearance issues at the White House. And the reason is that if you have a whole lot of people who are working without security clearances or working with security clearances that they shouldn't have, they are targets for foreign uh, intelligence operatives. They are targets for all kinds of things. And that means you will see incidents in which uh, entities – foreign entities try to induce breaches. And that is exactly what Susan, the other, a few weeks ago, said, we're going to be seeing a lot of this. And, you know, now we have Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady. And, you know, this was uh, both predictable and it was predicted. It is not a surprise. And so I think Democrats should be all over it. By the way, Republicans should be all over it, too, not because there's political hay to make about it, but because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, there, there are actual important equities that will be compromised if these security concerns are not addressed. 
Okay, well, speaking of the right thing to do, this week marks six months since Saudi agents killed journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post contributing columnist in the consulate in Istanbul. Uh, The CIA assessment that the Saudi crown prince likely ordered that operation that resulted in his death has not changed, nor has the White House's position that the evidence seems inconclusive as to who is ultimately responsible for that. So, Tammy, let me go to you on this. It's been six months. The dust has sort of settled in the immediate aftermath of Khashoggi's death and the kind of the, the scandal that ensued over, you know, who was responsible. And now we're sort of left with this kind of stasis, it seems to me. What has fundamentally changed, if much of anything, in the U.S.-Saudi relationship in the past six months, do you think? Thanks, Jane. So first of all, I I think that actually the dust hasn't settled. The dust is like suspended in the air on this issue of how Jamal Khashoggi was murdered and what accountability the Saudi government will, in fact, implement for those who were responsible, and indeed what culpability the Saudi government will even accept for the actions of its own employees and officials in murdering Jamal Khashoggi. So I I think that in many ways this cloud still looms over the bilateral relationship as a whole. In practical terms, I think there are a couple things going on. At the, at the highest level of government between Mike Pompeo and President Trump and, uh, Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt and the, and their Saudi interlocutors, primarily the Crown Prince himself, but also his brother Khalid bin Salman, the Deputy Defense Minister, it's basically business as usual. Pompeo's been out to Riyadh, Kushner's been out to Riyadh, they they go ahead and have conversations about the other issues that they care about as though this had never happened. And at the same time, publicly, the administration continues to say that it expects accountability from the Saudis, but it doesn't seem to be putting any pressure on them or leveraging any dimension of American engagement with Saudi Arabia in order to achieve that outcome. With Congress, the Saudis are in a deep, deep crisis. And I think it's only been in recent weeks that they have begun to accept that this is a real crisis, that it's not going to blow over, that the president is not going to be able to simply bully his way past senatorial concerns on this. And so we saw Khalid bin Salman, who had been the Saudi ambassador in Washington um, before he became deputy defense minister, he came to Washington this week and gave an interview to sort of acknowledge that there are real issues in the relationship and that the Saudis are committed to working on them. But at the same time, you know, they they really just have refused to take ownership, to take responsibility for the murder. And they've also failed, I think, to respond to other concerns, policy concerns in Washington about the way they're governing internally and the way they're behaving regionally. So, you know, congressional concerns about the Yemen war continue to be significant, and there have been a series of votes in Congress attempting to constrain American support for and participation in the Yemen military campaign. The president is probably going to have to veto uh, a resolution on that very soon. In addition, the Saudis continue to prosecute this group of women human rights activists who were arrested almost a year ago now, just at the same time that uh, the crown prince was implementing 
women's ability to drive in Saudi Arabia. The women who had advocated for that were detained and they're now on trial, basically accused of talking to journalists and talking to diplomats, um, and that that is seen as uh, traitorous behavior. And there's a lot of news reporting that some of these women have been physically abused during their detention. So in a way, you know, the, the regime keeps behaving in a repressive manner that is making its PR problem worse. It's making doubts about the crown prince and his character and his, his judgment worse among members of Congress. And the Saudi government up until this week hasn't really tried to engage in a conversation to address those concerns directly. They did appoint a new ambassador to Washington, Princess Rima bin, uh, bin Thandar, who is, you know, seen as someone who knows the United States very well. She grew up mostly here. But I think there's very little hope that she can be effective unless there's some willingness from the top to address the substantive issues at stake. So are we in a position then where is the removal of Prince Mohammed as the leader, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, sort of the logjam that has to be broken, or could there be something short of that? Oh, look, I mean, there's no question that there are members of Congress who believe and who have even said, like Lindsey Graham, that they would rather see Mohammed bin Salman ousted from his position as crown prince. But that's not up to anyone in the United States. I don't think that realistically the United States could uh, leverage its relationship with the kingdom to achieve that outcome. But I do think that the crown prince, if he were concerned to address Washington's troubles and to improve the relationship, he could demonstrate a change in approach. He could demonstrate uh, a willingness to be less repressive. He could release these female activists. He could demonstrate more concern for American interests in Yemen for example, and try to push that war toward a resolution uh, at the negotiating table. He, in other words, he could do things to demonstrate that he's heard the criticism and he's changing his approach a little bit. And I think that would actually go a long, long way in Congress. But so far, I think there's been an approach on the Saudi side of, well, let's just do as little as possible. Let's make a tiny, tiny change. Let's make a let's appoint a new national security advisor. See if that satisfies concerns in Washington. Okay, let's let three of the women who are on trial leave prison while they're on trial and see if that satisfies Washington. So it's it's a sort of de minimis approach, and unfortunately, I think there there is simultaneously a drip, drip, drip of negative developments, domestic repression, new revelations about Jamal's murder that just keep jamming up the work. Susan, do you think that, I mean, when something like this happens, it strains the relationship at the top level. I mean, look at it from the perspective of the, you know, somebody at the NSA who, not that Saudis have an equivalent signals intelligence gathering apparatus, but sort of a line level intelligence person who has a, a relationship or a partnership. I mean, do these kinds of things weather that storm pretty consistently or can they really start to strain the entire system? So I think they can strain the entire system. You know, look, the one big wild card here is Jared Kushner's close personal relationship with MBS. And so to the extent that we have the ordinary, you know, sort of nation state apparatuses engaging with one another and and sort of applying 
ordinary forms of pressure and trying to predict, you know, what is sort of going to be the straw that, that breaks the camel's back or what is going to be the thing that sort of breaks through. I mean, the, the problem is, is that whenever you have that kind of relationship in the mix, it becomes incredibly unpredictable because you don't know whenever you have the United States presenting a united front and saying, you know, this is what we want or, or uh, you know, these are our demands or these are our expectations. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, it's something else whenever you have one person who's incredibly close to the president who's who's giving some sort of uh, alternate message. And so th- the thing that I would be curious about if I was sort of sitting in Saudi signal intelligence or or sitting in uh, U.S. or allied signals intelligence is um, what are people saying about the real message that Mohammed bin Salman at least believes he's getting from the White House? Because it might look quite different from the message that we're seeing certainly out of Congress, but also out of places like the State Department and the National Security Council. You know, Shane, I think that there is one other technical dimension of the relationship that has clearly been affected. And kudos to David Ignatius for doing a reporting to dig this up. But it turns out that members of the unit who were involved in Jamal Khashoggi's murder uh, were trained in the United States under security contracts, you know, licensed by the State Department and implemented by U.S. defense contractors. And so the the murder has basically thrown a wrench into the works in a variety of bilateral training, modernization, and other defense contracts that connect with Saudi intelligence and the Saudi defense establishment. And over time, you know, if those contracts remain frozen or ended, um, that is going to lead to a decline in the overall security relationship because there will be fewer contacts and less transparency. And frankly, if I were in the, in the U.S. intelligence community, I would also be very wary about helping to build Saudi intelligence capabilities that might end up getting used in this way. Well, let's talk about just briefly, too, and Susan, you can speak to this sort of a weird, another kind of weird tangential spin out of this strange and strange relationship with the Saudis. Jeff Bezos, who, of course, owns my employer, The Washington Post, has through his security consultant, a guy named Gavin DeBecker, seemed to allege in a column in The Daily Beast that the Saudis may have tried to or successfully hacked Bezos's phone. And somehow this is connected to the paper's coverage of the Saudi killing of Jamal Khashoggi. What do we know about that? And is there a way to try and kind of like fit that into the framework of what we're talking about here? Or is this just some sort of weird tangential issue? So it's a, this is a weird story. So essentially, this is sort of um, Bezos's accusation that, that's been floating around for a while that um, that the way that the National Enquirer obtained, uh, you know, these text messages and intimate images between Bezos and his mistress um, were by the Saudis having hacked his phone. And so it's sort of later, there was a story that no, uh, the National Enquirer source had actually been his girlfriend's brother. And 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 Bezos announced that he was launching this investigation. And it's always sort of unclear uh, what exactly it means when a very, very rich person who is still not himself a government uh, says he's investigating the matter. So the, he launches this investigation. And, and in the past couple of days, uh, his security consultant, Gavin DeBecker, has announced that they have concluded the investigation and that their investigation has determined that with high confidence that the Saudis had access to Bezos's phone and gained private information. Um, and he lays this all out in sort of a column that he wrote for the Daily Beast. 
the evidence is incredibly thin and weird. It's basically, well, we think that they had these text messages before they spoke to Michael Sanchez, based on what Michael Sanchez and some other people said. We talked to a lot of Saudi experts um, and people who are sort of familiar with Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi dissidents. They all think that this this is what happened. And AMI acted pretty weird uh, sort of in response to this al- these allegations. And therefore, it's the Saudis. He doesn't give any kind of forensic information, right? What communications channels were they using? What does he mean by saying the Saudis had access to? Are we talking about remote access to the phone? Are we talking about physical access to the phone? You know, so sort of the ties to the Saudis are, are very, very thin. Uh, the claim for sort of hacking in terms of evidence is really thin. The problem is that he's using sort of the language of the intelligence community, right? He's saying, we've, con- we've confirmed with high confidence. And I think this does insert this sort of... <sighs> This, this bizarre sense of somehow now it's a, it's a free-for-all, that the, sort of the, the U.S. government has, has ceased to effectively function in this space. Nobody knows what's real anymore. So now anybody can sort of say, well, we believe, you know, we accuse a nation state of doing this really serious thing. And I think it does get a little bit at, at, at kind of the crisis that we've all been talking about for a long time. And that's that when someone levels a serious accusation against a foreign government, and this is a serious accusation against a foreign government, it's the kind of thing that the American government would be very concerned about if it was substantiated, there's actually no one in the U.S. government with the credibility to come forward now and say, yeah, that guy's crazy. We don't know what he's talking about. There's, that's not evidence. That's not an intelligence finding. And so, right, there, there's, it's not just the ability to, uh, you know, for, for the government to sort of establish uh, reality, like we believe the Saudis are responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but also the inability to sort of smack down these these bizarre stories, which I, I guess maybe there is something to them. There's there's nothing to substantiate it here. But, you know, sort of smack down conspiracy theories. It, it's just it is we're in bizarro world. Yeah. And Ben, I'd be curious to get your reaction to that, too, because it seems to me that it's, it's the, the, the column that, frankly, both Bezos wrote on Medium and then that a security consultant wrote are just filled with innuendo and no evidence. Yeah. So I will say that even assuming it's true, so what? You know, foreign intelligence services, you know, spy on people. And I, I do not think that the, in, an intelligence interest on the part of the Saudis on a major U.S. businessman is a matter of comparable weight to the murder of dissidents or the imprisoning of, you know, women activists or uh, the stifling of civil society. And so while I do think it raises a legitimate, perfectly legitimate security concern for Jeff Bezos that he should certainly address, and if I were the world's richest man and I thought a foreign intelligence service were spying on me, I would hire someone like Gavin De Becker to, to make that problem or minimize or manage the risk of that problem or try to make it go away. But it doesn't actually strike me as a big, it's not something that outrages me as to Saudi behavior uh, in the way, and I don't think it should have substantial implications, even if true, for U.S.-Saudi relations in the way that the stuff that you were discussing with Tammy a few minutes ago, that stuff is unacceptable behavior that should profoundly affect U.S.-Saudi relations. You know, I, I agree with 
you both that there is a lot of reason to scratch your head and say, wait a minute, have they say they have high confidence, but uh, I say how high, really. Um, but I also do have a little bit of a so what reaction to it, even if true, which is not the case with, with some of the other matters that we've been talking about. I do think there's one dimension of this that is worth exploring, which is the question of whether these Saudi capabilities were developed as a result of contracts with U.S. government contractors or cooperation with U.S. government agencies or the ongoing question of whether Israeli companies that are now being sold to European and American uh, investors sold this surveillance technology to the Saudis. I do think that's a question that has national security implications and needs to be explored more deeply. Right. Well, speaking of so what reactions, <laughs> we are now... How many days since we haven't had the Mueller report? When was the Mueller report born? Ten days ago? I don't know. We're like new parents. We're in a haze. <laughs> it's, it's ten days and the baby still hasn't come from home from the hospital. I think the I think the phrase you're looking for, Shane, is lost in the mists of time. <laughs> Your baby was lost by UPS. It's in the mail, guys. It's, it's in the delivered. Or parts of it. Your partially redacted baby will be delivered soon. But meanwhile, uh, oversight committees on the Hill are gearing up for the post-Mueller era, and there has already been a very clear partisan divide between Democrats who are fired up to investigate, as we had long expected them to, basically every imaginable aspect of behavior uh, by the president and the administration. And it looks like a lot of Republicans lining up on the other side and not only saying, so what, but that these da- these investigations are potentially damaging and will do uh, long-lasting damage to not just the pursuit of oversight, but uh, potentially could be damaging even to national security for what they might unearth. I kind of feel, Susan, a little bit through the looking glass on some of these arguments here, because if we just take the House Intelligence Committee, for instance, where last week Republicans unanimously called for Chairman Adam Schiff to resign his leadership of the committee and sort of accusing him of launching into fishing expeditions that could jeopardize national security, we go back to the previous Congress and it was Democrats accusing Republicans of going on fishing expeditions to try and support the the president that could damage national security. I'm not trying to draw a false equivalency here, but it does seem like, and this is happening in other committees too, but here's a committee that was already kind of had run off the rails and just seems just completely stuck in the mud at this point. Yeah, so I do think that the performance we saw at this that this Hipsy hearing on Thursday is evidence of essentially a complete breakdown of bipartisan oversight in Hipsy, and I, I I don't mean that with any exaggeration. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's been sort of a, a long time coming, but it was still a pretty shocking event. So to kind of recap what happened, um, you know, Schiff had called a hearing on you know sort of a, on how on Putin's playbook, you know, what exactly how exactly uh, Putin operates to influence the United States. He gives a really sort of standard opening, and then whenever it goes to his time for the ranking member, Devin Nunes, to speak. Nunes introduces this letter uh, in which all nine Republicans on the committee have said they've lost confidence in Schiff, that he made all this innuendo about uh, about collusion, and now that the Mueller report, which of course the Republicans in Congress haven't seen, uh, and, and that now they'd lost confidence in him and they wanted him to, to resign his chairmanship. 
We've seen this kind of nonsense BS shenanigans from hipsy Republicans for a while. But I think that the belief, or certainly my belief, had been that really it was kind of Devin Nunes and maybe a few others being you know, Devin Nunes, right, just sort of ridiculous and um, and intensely partisan. What was shocking about this letter was to see names like Will Hurd on it, like Elise Stefanik, people who have to date sort of been reasonable middle-of-the-road Republicans. And for them to have signed a letter calling for Schiff to resign his chairmanship on completely spurious allegations, and let's just be clear about that, absolute nonsense, really is an indication that the dysfunction at play here is not just the former chairman now ranking kind of out to lunch and everybody else wishes that there wasn't a distraction and really wants to get down to business. The fact that there are nine names on this letter is a sign that there is something irretrievably broken in Hipsy right now. And that should be really alarming to people for reasons totally separate from the Mueller report. People don't realize that behind closed doors, the intelligence committees really do work together. Their staffs really do work together. They operate as a branch overseeing another branch. And yes, there's always politics. There's always some degree of partisanship. There really is this space that comes before politics where people are really committed to performing their roles because it's essential to national security. And if this is the stuff that's spilling out into public, the American people should be incredibly alarmed about what is going on behind closed doors and whether or not that basic day-to-day work of oversight that is critical to keeping this country and our allies safe, whether or not that work is happening at all. Ben, did you want to jump in here? Yeah. So I agree with all of that entirely. I also think I think that Susan's point that the inclusion of people like Will Hurd on that letter uh, is the major, I don't think it's all that significant that Devin Nunes and, and the people who have energized the breakdown of that committee over the last few years did what they did. I do think it is amazing that it was all nine Republicans, including ones who have been very reasonable people in the past. I also do think it is worth uh, saying a few words in defense of Adam Schiff. So what Adam Schiff appears to be accused of is having suggested that he had seen evidence of collusion. And uh, the uh, statement that supposedly falsifies this is that Barr describes Mueller as not uh, having found uh, material that would establish uh, conspiracy or coordination to the satisfaction of the criminal law. That is a different thing from finding that the various threads of activity and connection between the Trump campaign and Russians uh, did not amount to any sort of evidence of any sort of collusion. And I thought that Schiff, uh, who actually gave a pretty impressive statement on the subject in response to this, I thought uh, spoke rather well for himself. But I do think the fact that, you know, he is being accused basically by a group of people who manufactured a set of conspiracy theories, Adam Schiff is being accused of conspiracy theorizing, 
is a weird uh, uh, kind of Orwellian inversion. Um, and so I, while I would not say that every statement that Adam Schiff has made is the most responsible thing uh, ever said in, in, in Congress or on television by a member of Congress, I do think by and large he has been a responsible actor and a fairly careful actor. And to have him be accused by a group of people who have behaved as irresponsibly as the House Intelligence Committee Republicans have of, of all things conspiracy theorizing is one of these uh, weird post-truth world aspects of the uh, world that we're now inhabiting. I do think we should all note that one question that Devin Nunes quite pointedly asked the witness, Michael McFall, was whether or not he knew Benjamin Wittes. And so I just think everyone you on this podcast... took my object podcast. lesson away, Susan. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, like, I had an object lesson all planned, and it was, you know, it was that exchange. I even have a clip of it, and, you know, you, 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 you always... This is what like, happens when you're not... You know, this is what now. happens when you go to California <laughs> and, and enjoy your life. <laughs> Well, was a little Between now and the end of the segment, I will come up with another object. Oh, good. Lesson. Well, one thing I did want to, to, to ask, and Ben, I take your point, and I think it's, it's well said that Adam Schiff is not uh, – or Schiff's prior statements on collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia are not the same thing as what Barr is talking about being in Mueller's report. But it does seem to me – I mean, and we talked about this, bit, I think, last week when the, the Barr letter had come out, or maybe it was the week before, that – Regardless of what the Mueller report says, I think inarguably it has taken some of the wind out of the sails of oversight and aggressive investigation of the administration, which is not to say that Democrats won't continue pressing. And even you know today, uh, the Judiciary Committee, I think it was, voted to authorize subpoenas of the Mueller report itself, which is not to say they've issued one yet, but they're kind of cocking the gun and saying we're ready to fire here. But Tammy, maybe you take this. I mean, do you think that the fact that of the way the report has been rolled out or that the fact that the report's not going to conclude criminal activity does make it more difficult for these oversight investigations to occur because I think we had all been operating under the presumption that they would be like subpoena factories, but maybe that won't be so easy. You know, I, I think that this is the unenviable position that Adam Schiff is in, chair of this committee, is that every committee chairman, when his party it does not hold the White House, wants to use his committee chairmanship to reveal, you know, bad policies, bad processes, um, rule breaking by the sitting president and his team. Right? That's that's how you make your name as a member of the House and as a committee chairman. And, you know, there are a bunch of, of chairmen and chairwomen who are geared up to do that in the House right now. And Adam Schiff is the one who holds the bag on the Russia investigation. So does it take wind out of his sails? Maybe a little bit. I mean, there's still plenty to investigate, including just clearing up, you know, exactly what the Russians did and what it is the United States government needs to do to defend against Russian penetration or other foreign penetration of our electoral process in the future. And if I were Adam Schiff, that's where I would be focusing my attention right now. But to me, what was Striking about the Nunes letter and the fact that it was signed by all of the Republicans on the committee, what that says to me is that the Republican argument, the talking point that they came out with 
as soon as the bar letter was issued, which was, okay, this is done, let's all move on, was fundamentally disingenuous because what Nunes' letter was about was not, okay, this is done, let's all move on. What Nunes' letter was about was, we are now going to use Barr's description of this report and eventually the report itself as a bludgeon with which to attack Democrats. In other words, we're not moving on. Um, this is still all-out war. Whether the Mueller is done or not done doesn't matter. And it seems to me a bit perverse. I mean, it's, it's undermining of their core message, but it's doing it for a very political purpose. And to me, that was the main message, is that even if Adam Schiff were ready to move on, Devin Nunes isn't. Well, we're ready to move on to object lessons. I'll go ben, first. you want to go first? Since I stole Ben's. Okay, you I'm go first. Sorry. Ben, you can go last if you're still thinking of one. Go I'm ahead, Susan. I have my object lesson all oh. cooked up now. Well, okay, well, that was fast. <laughs> so my object lesson um, is a lawsuit. Uh, it is a lawsuit that was filed in uh, the U.S. District Court for Maryland um, challenging the pre-publication review process. So this is a suit that's brought by a number of former intelligence and military officials that are basically saying that the um, rather arbitrary and dysfunctional pre-publication review process amounts to censorship and um, and is a violation of their First Amendment rights. Um, so this is a, a suit that I just think is, is really interesting. It's certainly, a fa- as, as someone who um, both submits materials for pre-publication review and also publishes lots of materials that have been pre-publication reviewed, um, I'm watching with a lot of interest. I, I'm not personally convinced that a suit sort of striking down the entire pre-publication review system is the right way to go about things. I, I think there needs to be some uh, some system in place. That said, um, there is an extremely strong argument for how broken the current system is and, um, and the extent to which it really does chill uh, important speech uh, on by former, uh, former intelligence and military and government officials who uh, have important contributions to make. So uh, I'm just uh, putting it out there. We, we posted the documents on Lawfare, um, and I will be following it with interest. Would it make your life easier if there were no PRB? So I actually think it would make life harder if there mm-hmm. was no PRB because PRB is a way to inoculate yourself, right. right? So it's a way to say, okay, there's nothing classified in this and sort of get that affirmative judgment, which is one reason why I think there can't be no process. Um, but I also, my former agency is really exceptional. They get things around, they get things turned around really, really quickly. They exercise a lot of discretion and restraint. I, I've never had an experience of them overreaching. Um, although I know there are some other uh, former NSA officials who feel otherwise. Um, That said, if you talk to former CIA officials, for example, they have a very different feeling about uh, the way that their agency's PRB operates. So the mere fact that there's And and the Justice Department is a disaster. Exactly. And and the mere fact that there is a difference based on what agency you've worked for is a pretty good indication that the system is broken. Uh, well, I'll do my object next because it actually sort of does relate to the CIA. I'm going to flag for folks the Lawfare podcast that just went up, I think, last night, actually, Tuesday night, but it's up now as of Wednesday. Uh, this is sort of part two of an interview or segment that David Priest did, uh, the first being with two former public affairs officers who were the spokespersons for the CIA, talking about how they interact with reporters. And for part two, he decided to ask reporters to sit down and their experiences covering the CIA and the intel community. So I was delighted to do that and to sit down with my friend Mary Louise Kelly uh, from NPR, who sort of began the intel beat for NPR after 9-11. And she talks about that story. And of course, now is one of the co 
co-hosts of All Things Considered. Um, it was a great time. It was really, really fun to sort of get into the weeds of what it's like and share some quote-unquote war stories. We never really went to war, so not war stories, but it was fun. It was great fun, and I think it was a nice compliment to the um, to the first podcast that he did with the Flax, so-called, from CIA, which you should check out too. Um, so listen to them both. Go for it. Ben, do you want to do your object now? And you've been dying to tell us what it is. My <laughs> substitute object lesson is a steaming hot plate of crow <laughs> that uh, I may have to eat, Uh-oh. depending on the conduct of one Bill Barr. Uh, so this weekend, uh, uh, last I wrote a article saying that people should give Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt on the on the release of the Mueller report that his the plan he has laid out for reviewing it and the concerns he has expressed are basically reasonable and the time frame that he's laid out is short uh, and that I am therefore willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and see uh, what kind of release the Justice Department is actually doing before I assume that he uh, means to bury the report or redact a whole lot of things that I think uh, need to become public. Uh, and I have been unsurprised uh, to find that there was a, there is a rather uh, skeptical reaction to this on the part of a lot of people uh, who are much more skeptical of Barr's intentions than I am instinctively. And so I said at the end of the piece that I might have to eat uh, a plate of crow relatively quickly as a result uh, if, if Barr turns out to be less of a, a good citizen on this than I hope he will be. Uh, and so I just want to flag that there is a plate of crow uh, piping hot with my name on it, and we will know in relatively short time whether I have to eat it or whether I uh, can pass it on to somebody else. Mm, delicious crow. I thought you were going to say a steaming hot pile of crabs because you're in San Francisco. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm trying to keep the podcast clean Oh, okay. well, this week. There's nothing wrong with crabs. <laughs> Not crap, crabs. Crabs. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> lives in the a, ocean, pinchy. What, what would a hot pile of crab have to do with San Francisco? Crabs, I don't know. Crabs. I was a little, con- I was a little confused by the question. But you went with it. But you just, just went with it. You went just said it. yes. It's like, true. It's the first lesson of <laughs> Yes, crap. I love crap in San Francisco. The best crap. So good. Tammy, Tammy, save us. What's your object? So bookending Susan's object, my object is also a lawsuit, a lawsuit that was decided uh, by the Supreme Court about a week ago. The lawsuit is Surgeon D. Frost, and it takes up the crucial question of whether, under the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, a river counts as land. Now, this may seem like an obscure question of federal law to you and me, but actually, this decision allows for an amazing thing. It allows for John Sturgeon, the plaintiff, to ride a hovercraft on the Nation River and use it to hunt moose. And I just, it's an amazing picture of American ingenuity that a man who wants to hunt moose in Alaska and knows that the, the land around him is governed by, you know, the National Park Service and other conservation authorities, 
But the river, the river is not the land and therefore doesn't fall under the legal constraints on hunting on the land. And so he hunts the moose from the river. He has now won his case. He's free to hunt moose from his hovercraft. And I just want to say, John Sturgeon, I salute you. <laughs> I also am not going to litigate all my petty shit to the United States Supreme Court and get a formal ruling. This they is, wanted this case. What is this a good Supreme idea. Court for if not this? Hey, they said yes. I just want the hovercraft. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I want, too. I'll just take pictures in the moose. I want to go around the hovercraft. Uh, and maybe I'll do that now that we're done with the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find lower, uh, Rational Security hovercraft hats and mugs <laughs> at, what is it, Lawfare <laughs> But don't, don't use them on rivers. That is what we need. We need a Rational Security hovercraft. Yes. Maybe one of our listeners can get on that. <laughs> Stop sending us scotch. Send us a goddamn hovercraft. That's what we really want. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It helps others find the pod and become part of the big family. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by... Sorry. I'm, so... I'm not going to make it through the music. I got the giggles. By... It's so stupid. I think it's a good one, though. What the hell? Okay. By the Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady and her Radiohead tribute band, put me in your OK computer. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. It's so dumb. I love it so much. Oh, I only hope Sophia Yan loves it as much as I do. On behalf of our good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittison, Tamara Kaufman Wittison, lovely Sausalito, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week with a steaming hot pile of grass. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.